hppodcraft.com. It was a flaming sunset or late afternoon in the tiny provincial town of Pompello, at the foot of the Pyrenees in the Hispania Citerior. The year must have been in the late Republic, for the province was still ruled by a senatorial proconsul instead of a praetorian legate of Augustus, and the day was the first before the Calends of November. The hills rose scarlet and gold to the north of the little town, and the westering sun shone ruddily and mystically on the crude new stone and plaster buildings of the dusty forum and the wooden walls of the circus some distance to the east. Groups of citizens, broad-browed Roman colonists and coarse-haired Romanized natives, together with the obvious hybrids of the two strains, a light clad in cheap woolen togas, and sprinklings of helmeted legionnaires and coarse-mantled black-bearded tribesmen of the circumambient Wascones, all thronged the few paved streets and forum, moved by some vague and ill-defined uneasiness. Oof. That was the third paragraph from H.P. Lovecraft's story-slash-letter, The Very Old Folk, which is one of the two stories we're covering today on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com. Who, who is that? Oh, I'm sorry. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. I'm one of the co-hosts of this show. Uh, who is this speaking? Oh, this is Chris Lackey. I'm the other co-host of this show, and uh, I'm not alone today with me, Chad. I no. have uh, I have the third member our 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 dusty bottoms, if you will. <laughs> Michael J. Mann. Zip, 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 zip. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Mike, uh, if, for those of you that don't know, is also known as um, Mandroid on our, our forums. Uh, he is kind of the, not kind of, he is. He's the backbone of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Without him, we wouldn't have a site. We wouldn't have forums. We would be penniless. Uh, it probably would have gone down because we couldn't technically handle any of this chad and i are just like babies lost in the woods and <laughs> mike is like the majestic powerful wolf that has picked us up and is feeding us from his teeth i don't I, that metaphor is terrible wow. i don't know what teeth i have and apparently aside from programming languages and and uh and web coding knows scat very well that was a great way to. <laughs> this is more of this is scat school of Bill Cosby. That's where I went. Aside from his technical prowess, which is formidable, he also uh, did the design of our site and our logo. It's really cool, and and I would remind everybody that you can pick up some T-shirts and other paraphernalia with that logo on it at cafepress.com/hppodcraft. Uh, whatever you buy there, go right into Mike's, uh, right up Mike's nose. <laughs> That's where I keep it all. <laughs> Not the money, but what the money buys. Yeah, oh. <laughs> I said that. We do have a uh, another promotion going on. Um, aside from selling uh, some some merchandise, we do uh, that. We talked about. Yeah, we do. We talked about it last week on the show on the color out of space. But just to get it out of the way real quick, we are trying. We're doing a ransom, in which we're trying to raise two thousand dollars. And once we've got the money together, we're going to release two recordings of two H.P. Lovecraft stories. The first being uh, From Beyond with reader Bruce Green, and the second being The Picture in the House with the reader being Andrew Lehman. Of course, those two stories are going to be read in spectacular 3D. 3D. Now, what, now I, I'm confused. How can, how can sound be in 3D? I've heard of stereo, but uh, 3D? No, what do you mean by that? This is, this is much more, this is both more challenging and less high-tech than stereo. Essentially, we're going to release uh, three versions of each story, three tracks that you would then download to different devices and play simultaneously in a room 
so that every time you listen to the story and the story reading, it's sort of a different experience, and it and it kind of uh, places the sound effects and the music in different parts of the room, and it, oh. it should be a cool experience, something you can get together with other Lovecraft fans to listen to and enjoy. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll get my in-laws over, and we'll have them listen to it. They'll, they'll love it. That's a good way to connect with your in-laws. Now, uh, you can easily make a donation by going to our site. Once again, it's hppodcraft.com. There's a conveniently located donate button there. Press it. Send some money through PayPal, and we will take it from you, and then you'll have a reading soon. So that's there that. There you go. That sounds yeah. great. Uh, I, I do want to say that, that that opening paragraph that we heard, uh, of the letter that you're about to talk a little more about, Chris. Oh, yes. The, re- the reading was done by uh, a new reader, uh, Elliot Miller. And uh, Elliot is a listener of the show. He's a friend of the show. He's uh, got a site over at voiceofe.com. He's a voice actor. He did a great job, and, and we're glad to have him on the show. Hope to have him uh, as a guest. Yeah, today. it's great. He sound, sounds powerful. I love it. But to the stories. Today, we're, we're not just covering one. We're covering two story slash letters. They're both story, story letters, letter stories. Okay. The Very Old Folk and The Thing in the Moonlight. Now, the, the first paragraph that we heard from uh, was the third paragraph, as I said, of The Very Old Folk, which was a letter. Both of these are both letters to Donald Wandry, who was a friend of Lovecraft. Wandry was, had connections with Farnsworth. Uh, Farnsworth passed on the Call of Cthulhu originally, and then Wandry kind of went into Farnsworth and said, hey, buddy, you know, All right. a lot of other people want this story, you know. And then and then Farnsworth was like, well, huh, wait, wait a minute, hold on. And then he called Lovecraft up and said, okay, yeah, I'll take your story. So That's right. Because Donald of him. sort of engineered uh, right. Lovecraft getting the Call of Cthulhu placed in Weird Tales by manipulating the editor Farnsworth. Yeah. Was it was it that disjointed what I just said that you had to, to summarize it? <laughs> That's just what I like to do because you get all the <laughs> you know the stuff and then I say it and then you know when the news reports on our show they pull my uh, my quote. Oh, you always get the poll quotes. Soundbite. Soundbite. They call it these days. Yeah. The Soundbites. Yeah. Soundbite. See what I just did it again. So anyway, uh, so both of these letters were written to him. The the first letter, it's addressed to Melmoth. I'm curious. So when he, in the letter it says, "Dear Melmoth," is that is he is that a nickname he's got for Donald Wandra? I don't know. That, I, if, in my oh. research, I couldn't figure. Out. If any of our listeners happen to know what that's about, uh, I would love to know why he's calling him Melmoth. It must be some kind of inside joke or something, or yeah. whoever rewrote this and published it tried to make it more interesting. I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure. But tell me who Melmoth is. Yeah, Melmoth. Um, he was Melmoth the Wanderer from that uh, that novel, Gothic novel, published in eighteen twenty, written by uh, Charles Robert Maturin. He sold the uh, soul to the devil for like one hundred fifty years, which is a really bad deal because he's a bad haggler, I guess. <laughs> now, uh, the very old folk. This is a dream that Lovecraft had that he addresses in this letter to Donald, but he also sent some different versions of this letter to Frank Belknap Long and Bernard Dwyer. This version that he sent to Wandry was what was published in the journal Scientist Snaps, Scientist Snaps, in 1940. But the story, or this dream, was used by Long, who incorporated it into his story, The Horror from the Hills. A couple of these guys ended up using it in one way or another. Getting into the story, specifically, it starts off with a, a paragraph at the beginning where he just says, you know, hey, I had this dream. And let me tell you about it. The reason that he's writing about this dream is because the person he's corresponding with has also been reading up on Roman history. And so right. this is sort of something that they're sharing. And and uh, when in the opening paragraph, he says, so you're busy delving into the shady past of that insufferable young Asiatic, various Avitus Bassianus. Ugh, there are a few persons I loathe more than that cursed little Syrian rat, <laughs> <laughs> which I found really funny. Like in 1927, why is he so angry? 
like personally angry at this Roman emperor, you know. In his defense, the this emperor that he's talking about, Bassianus, was reviled by historians and by the people of his time. He was very promiscuous, and uh, he basically, his grandmother had engineered him into becoming emperor, and he was very young. I think he was between like 15 and 18 when he was ruling Rome. And, oh, wow. And uh, yeah, he would dress up like a like a male prostitute and go out and, you know, turn tricks basically and and then the thing that people were yeah he would yeah he really he would really do it. and the thing that people were most mad at him about though was that uh he had a syrian god elgabal that he was trying to instate as sort of the royal cult head of 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 rome um to make that you know him the supreme god in rome and he brought this black stone from syria and installed it in this temple and wanted people to worship the black stone i found that to be actually somewhat more Lovecraftian than some of the things that happened in this letter, <laughs> did, you know? Did he try to make the national song a, a rhythm of the night? <laughs> so he could have. Well, you know, obviously, that the name of the god was El Gabal. <laughs> oh, is, sorry. I thought I was thinking of El Gabal. You were thinking yeah, of El Gabal. No, the name, the, the right. name of the god was El, El Gabal, which is why this Bassianus is actually known better as Elagabalus. Uh, oh, that's what he Elagabalus is what he became to be known because they just named him after this god that he he this is something I never heard of before you know people will get into marriages to try and win over royalty he wanted his god to be so superior that he tried to marry Elgabal off to Roman god so he, he wanted to hook Elgabal up with Minerva but people were <laughs> upset about that so Elgabal ended up marrying Urania who's a lesser lesser goddess but anyway that's a little diversion that's who he's talking about in that first paragraph only as a means to transition to why he had this dream right and it was because right. on halloween he was up reading uh the virgil and uh when he dreams he he doesn't dream that he's himself he dreams that he is this other character this uh quaestor or questor you know what what is you don't know how that's pronounced yeah questor is like a it's like a roman um well, even today even in italy they still have the title but it's, it's a financial officer basically oh, yeah right okay and his name is l calius Rufus. And now don't confuse this Rufus with the Rufus from the Bill and Ted movies played by George Carlin. <laughs> Different guy entirely. Okay. I'll try not to. Yeah, so he's he's this character and that's that first paragraph he's sort of describing the atmosphere. So yeah, he's not he's not Lovecraft, he's actually a a, a guy that's living there, a Quaestar. Well, it's it's funny though because of course I, I laughed when I was reading this because he's like I had this dream I was carried back into Roman times you know I've often had dreams about Roman times and then he sort of describes what the little town of Pompella which is you know Spain what it looks like and he's giving you this all the throngs of the people the uneasy people and you know all their different and then of course he alights from a litter <laughs> right you know and he's carried by he's been Lovecraft has been carried in by slaves you know he's not part of the throng no no like, I just found not. it funny he's like oh and I discovered he actually says it funny he goes it appeared that I was a uh, Calus Rufus you know but, it appeared that <laughs> the story starts off I, I mean he's this other guy but as Chad was saying in the small provincial town of Pompello on the Calids of November, which is uh, the first of November, according to Roman calendars. That's where the word calendar comes from. Oh, Kayla, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And so he, the whole reason he's in this town is he's summoned by the proconsul, (laughs) P. Scribonius Libo. Scribonius, wow. P. Scribonius, that's my uh, hip-hop name. The reason why uh, Scribonius is uh, summoning to the town seems like uh, something strange is going on. The cause of the conference was a horror that brooded on the hills. All the townsfolk were frightened and had begged the presence of a cohort from Caligurus. 
It was the terrible season of the autumn, and the wild people in the mountains were preparing for the frightful ceremonies which only rumor told of in the towns. They were the very old folk who dwelt higher up in the hills and spoke a choppy language which the Wascones could not understand. One seldom saw them, but a few times a year they sent down little, yellow, squint-eyed messengers, who looked like Scythians, to trade with the merchants by means of gestures. And every spring and autumn they held the infamous rites on the peaks, their howlings and altar fires throwing terror into the villages. Always the same, the night before the Kalins of Maus and the night before the Kalins of November. Townsfolk would disappear just before these nights and would never be heard of again. And there were whispers that the native shepherds and farmers were not ill-disposed toward the very old folk, that more than one thatched hut was vacant before midnight on the two hideous Sabbaths. Mm. So it seems that these that these hill folk, these very old hill folk, uh, every year they have two ceremonies, one at before the 1st of May, which would be spring, and one before the 1st of November, which would be autumn. Yeah. And people would just start disappearing and never be seen again. And some of the people from the town participated as well. Yes. There are people that live there that would go up into the hills and celebrate these things. Now, right. in, in Roman times, there were often Roman citizens that, that lived in these towns, but there were also natives, you know, as he was saying in the beginning, and that mm. paragraph that we had that there's there's mixed people, there, there's native people, there's Romans, there's all diff different types of people that live in these towns. But this year, there was a problem. Three months back, five of these hill people came down to trade in Pompello, but a fight broke out and three of them were killed and the two others went back and hid in the hills. And since that happened, nobody had been abducted. Nothing, none of the people were disappearing as they should be, which right. is kind of a, a scary thing. Well, it's funny that that's the scary thing, you know. I mean, it, so every time they have these Sabbath rituals, they come down and they they steal people away. But the fact that they didn't do it this year, <laughs> you know, that means that something worse is coming. So right. something worse than being kidnapped. I just thought that meant that Iron Maiden wasn't coming to town that year. <laughs> no Sabbath this year. Well, no one's going to the hills. <laughs> On to the hills. So since nobody was abducted, they're anticipating that that something really bad is going to happen, that the hill folk are going to come down and wreak some kind of vengeance because when they're friendly with them, they're abducting people. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's <laughs> exactly. the relationship that's set up. You yeah. know, so now yeah. they're ticked. Who knows what the heck is going to happen? Some hellfire is probably going to be, you know, coming down. So everybody's scared. All the locals are freaking out. There's been a lot of drumming going on from the hills days before the Sabbath. The locals have gone to uh, Scribonius. Yeah. Scribonius and Balbutius. <laughs> nice so they go to him and, and, and he goes to Balbutius, who is a... Uh, Legatus. But it says he's also the Legatus of the whole region. Centurion yeah. Balbutius. Centurion Balbutius is the Legatus of the whole region. So he's sort of a general of some kind. Then. So our financial officer has come from Cal Caligurus with the Roman legion. And then also to meet them has come Balbutius, who's the general who kind of runs everything. Yeah. And they have a disagreement about what they should do. Balbutius is just like, forget about it. Who cares? You know, it's just hell people being crazy. It's barbarians. It's nothing to worry about. And Rufus, our protagonist, says, ho, 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 buddy, you got to be careful because these people are going to pull down some black magic. And I've studied black magic. I know what this can do. And these guys can probably destroy the whole town with magic. Like they're that powerful. Yeah. And still, Balbutius is just 
going, you know, whatever. You're out of your mind. That's ridiculous. He says it. Then Rufus says, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. Bobo just goes, whatever. So Rufus goes around and goes to Scribonius. Then he goes to Asalius because he says that Babudius isn't really going to help him out. So when he goes to Asalius, Asalius is the one that kind of pushes pushes a meeting. So they all get together and then they're going to meet in in Pompello. And then that's when they have the final argument about what they should do is in the tent. And Balbutius and Aselius, they both are like, you know what? It's better not to do anything and risk whatever the people will get upset than to go out and start stopping on people's local rituals. It's right. a bad idea. Yes. But Rufus asserts in this notion wins that civilization is the most important thing. So you have to protect the people who are actually doing things in a civilized Roman way. Even He doesn't even care about the morality of it. No. It's just that if you want civilization to expand, to expand and survive, you have to protect the people who are civilized, or at least as he defines it. Right, right. And he, and he says, I've also studied magic, and right. I know that these guys, he goes into specifics about how he was in Egypt and Syria and talked at length with the bloodthirsty priest of Diana in his temple in the woods bordering yeah. Lacus Nemorninus, which is a lake in Albania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been around. Yeah, he's been around. So Rufus knows what's up, and he says, look, we should do something about it. And they... They said, okay, we'll do it. Now, fortunately, they couldn't get any of the local uh, locals to go scout out, except they find this one kid, Vercellius, who has pure Roman parents, and he agrees to take them partially up into the hills. Yeah. And they've got a ton of guys, over 300 men, you know, all together. Some, some Roman soldiers, some townspeople, you know, just a whole mess of guys. All of them on foot, except for the officials. Yeah, who are on horses. But at some point, they had to leave the horses behind because the way up to where the Sabbath was going to happen got so steep. So they tethered right. them with a, a little body of men to watch to make sure that they didn't get you know, stolen. Right. And they exactly. continued to proceed up. And then things kind of go south from there. Then with utter and horrifying suddenness, we heard a frightful sound from below. It was from the tethered horses. They had screamed, not neighed, but screamed. And there was no light down there nor the sound of any human thing to shew why they had done so. At the same moment, bonfires blazed out on all the peaks ahead so that terror seemed to lurk equally well before and behind us. Looking for the youth Versilius, our guide, we found only a crumpled heap weltering in a pool of blood. In his hand was a short sword snatched from the belt of D. Vibulanus, a subcenturio, and on his face was such a look of terror that the stoutest veterans turned pale at the sight. He had killed himself when the horses screamed. He, who had been born and lived all his life in that region, and knew what men whispered about the hills. All the torches now began to dim, and the cries of frightened legionnaires mingled with the unceasing screams of the tethered horses. The air grew perceptibly colder, more suddenly so than is usual at November's brink and seemed stirred by terrible utilations, which I could not help connecting with the beating of huge wings. The whole cohort now remained at a standstill, and as the torches faded, I watched what I thought were fantastic shadows outlined in the sky by the spectral luminosity of the Violectia as it flowed through Perseus, Cassiopeia, Cepheus, and Cygnus. Then suddenly, all the stars were blotted from the sky. Even bright Deneb and Vega ahead, and the lone Altair and Formalhaut behind us. And as the torches died out altogether, there remained above the stricken and shrieking cohort only the noxious and horrible altar flames on the towering peaks, hellish and red, and now silhouetting the mad, leaping, 
and colossal forms of such nameless beasts as had never a Phrygian priest or Campanian grandam whispered of in the wildest of furtive tales. And above the nighted screaming of men and horses that demonic drumming rose to a louder pitch, whilst an ice-cold wind of shocking sentience and deliberateness swept down from those forbidden heights and coiled about each man separately, till all the cohort was struggling and screaming in the dark, as if acting out the fate of Laocoon and his sons. Only old Scribonius Libo seemed resigned. He uttered words amidst the screaming, and they echo still in my ears. Maletia vetus, maletia vetus, est venit, tandem venit. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. So, that's bad news, man. They went up there, and things just went, things were much, that, that was the revenge that they had planned. They didn't need sacrifices this year, because they're just unleashing some kind of horrid awfulness on the town. Yeah. It, it's not even it, it's not even really described. It's just sort of an evil thing, you know. The, and this little bit here, when in the very beginning of that, if you recall, uh, he says the horses screamed. You know, reminded me a lot of the story we just covered. Yeah, the color out of space, mm-hmm. where you know where the horse was tied up at the, in the front, and the horses were freaking out. And he's, I think he uses the same term that they screamed. The- yeah, which is horrible. It's a horrible thought, you know. Do you know happen to know what that last Latin phrase is that he he, he said? Well, that? you know what I um, I tried to look it up to see if there was an exact translation, and I couldn't find one. I mean, from what I can tell, just from my piddly Latin, it's uh, the old evil is uh, come again, and uh, that's basically all it says. I mean, it's yeah. you know, Mil- well, Vetus it, yeah. is the old evil. It, the old evil is uh, it's come. It's come as it always was supposed to, or it's finally come. Basically, when he says yeah. tandem, yeah. Well. The- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, from Joshi's translation of it is the old evil. It is the old evil. It comes. It comes at last. Oh, so it's last kind of the equivalent of when uh, you know, Gozer took the form of the Safe Buff Marshmallow Man at the end of mm-hmm. Ghostbusters. Exactly. It's kind of same thing going on there. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's funny you say that because one of the most famous Caesar quotes is "Veni, vidi, vici," right? Which I, I came, I saw, I conquered. So in Ghostbusters, when he says, "We came, we saw, we we kicked its ass." Yes. Peter Venkman is is quoting Caesar, but putting a little spin on it. Yeah, he made he made it his own. That's right. <laughs> so HPL says that you know he woke up. There's no record of that event happening uh, or those people, those specific people existing. But the town is is still in Spain, and it's now called Pamplona, right? So there you go. That's the town. The bulls do run there, right? I'm not crazy. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. the, no, you got it. And it's also signed, and he signs the letter. Years for Gothic Supremacy. <laughs> I think it's funny that it says Years for Gothic Supremacy, though. Goth power. Verus Maximus. Maximinus, I think. Maximinus, yeah. Uh, who was a Roman emperor, Maximinus, fourth century. Well, and that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we did a great job of struggling through that one. You know what? Our conversation about it is indicative of how I felt when I read it, though. Oh, my God. I'm not steeped in Roman history. I do have a, a decent background in it. Some of the names and some of the details, like getting in the way of me enjoying it uh, so much. But oh. there, I don't know. There, there is a neat kind of creepy thing about it, though, that I did like. I love the uh, the first few paragraphs of just you know straight straight yes every other three words. I was, I didn't <laughs> the flow at all. It was very entertaining. It had, it did feel a little bit like a uh, Dunwich Horror thing going on there. Although I question the ability of actually being a dream. I think it's more like I went to Roman times and I like they screwed some chick. That's not a good story though. So I'll just paraphrase a book and yeah, 
Whatever, it's, make something up on the fly. Yeah, that's very. Um, it's a very detailed dream that H.P. Lovecraft had. I don't know. I usually my dreams aren't that complicated. Yeah, well, we know that he definitely had some classical uh, world fantasies, even from when he was a little kid. So I don't doubt that he has those dreams. But Mike, yeah, I agree. I, I think that he woke up and said, "You know, what would go great here would be cult rituals in the woods in the hills." Yeah, I, I just don't buy that it was a fully no. formed. Yeah, this is one of those that I I would if you're a casual Lovecraft lover skip this story don't don't go there just it's really convoluted and and the names are he just throws out all these names and gives explanations of who they are by giving them other names that don't mean anything to me like i had to look up every every other word i had to look up yeah he's corresponding with somebody else who's interested in roman history so it makes sense but i do think he he did want to believe i read that he wanted to adapt this into a modern day story with the same device where some soldiers or police have to go up into the woods and, mm-hmm. I, and I suppose it does show up in earlier versions. It made me think of the Call of Cthulhu when the police go out into the swamps to right. bust up the cult. Moving on to The Thing in the Moonlight, which is another letter that H.P. Lovecraft uh, wrote to Donald Wandry in, mm-hmm. on the 24th of November, 1927. Now, the, the story that you actually can read, the story that's online. Now, if you go to hplovecraft.com, uh, they have the original letter and the story that was written based on the letter. Yeah, they're laid out side by side, right? It's really actually a nice presentation. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, totally go check it out. And the kind of the the editing or adaptation of it, if you want to call it that, was done by J. Chapman Misk. I'd say Misky. Misky. And it was published in the January 1941 issue of Bizarre Magazine. You know, this is a personal favorite of mine. This is one of these. It's really short. It's only like a couple pages long. But it's really creepy, and it's got some awesome imagery. Well, let's, let's just get into it. Morgan is not a literary man. In fact, he cannot speak English with any degree of coherency. That is what makes me wonder about the words he wrote, though others have laughed. He was alone the evening it happened. Suddenly, an unconquerable urge to write came over him, and taking pen in hand, he wrote the following. My name is Howard Phillips. I live at 66 College Street in Providence, Rhode Island. On November 24th, 1927, for I know not even what the year may be now, I fell asleep and dreamed. Since when, I have been unable to awaken. Oh, cool. That is that is so flippin' cool. This guy who can't even talk just randomly writes this thing down, which is saying that, you know, like somehow he got possessed by this yeah. spirit or, or something of this Howard Phillips guy. No, that's the date as he remembers it is in 1927, but he doesn't even know how long he's been dreaming, you know, yeah. that some, oh, it's, it's such a great opening. Yeah. It's a great portal into the story. The man possessed. And I don't know if he, I, I, I assumed that he was actually just a, a foreigner of some kind. So he can't oh, not speak a, English. Oh, right. He's illiterate, right. but he also, he can't speak English very well. So I assume that he's, and also I found it interesting that the name is Howard Phillips. That seems like something that, uh, uh, Misky would have added in. I, I don't right. think Lovecraft ever used Howard Phillips as a pseudonym. If you look at his original letter, it's not it's not part of it that uh, he put in. But I think that uh, Minsky made it really neat by by adding that into it. Yeah, that device is really cool. Uh, he writes this letter, and there's this guy that's in a dream. Howard starts off, and he's in a, a marsh. He's in a swamp, and he's pushed forward by some kind of quest like he needs to find something yeah he, he just wakes up in this marsh and says he's impelled by some obscure quest it's yes. all, all you need to know very very dream dreamlike logic he moves through the swamp and then he comes to a cliff and he feels compelled to climb up this cliff 
mm-hmm. that there's there's something coming after him. There's a kind of a sense of foreboding. And he goes and climbs up this this cliff. And there are these dark recesses when he's climbing, you know, these handhelds that he can't quite see into, but he feels like there's something inside of them. It's it's really, yeah. really, really creepy. Yeah, it's like the darkness or the blackness within these uh, abyssal sort of holes that he's using to climb. It's it's uh, palpable, you know, the blackness yeah. itself. It's it's some sort of... It, it kind of reminds me of Dagon when he's describing the moon hitting the... Uh... The, the landscape at night there he's climbing around the uh the island right absolutely yeah, yeah. absolutely sure, yeah. so he gets to eventually he gets to the top nothing grabs him or uh, you know takes hold of him. he gets up and it's sort of a, a flat plateau up up there and he begins walking across this sort of grassy land and as he's walking he walks and he walks he doesn't know how long he's walking he comes across a, a train track uh which it will a trolley track because he can see the wire there's like a post nearby and a wire that runs the length of it and then he starts to walk along the the trolley track and then from there he sees in the distance a bestialed car which is you know mm-hmm. from a trolley and it's numbered 1852 and it's a plain double trucked type common from 1900 to 1910 and it's just empty nobody's there he just kind of goes inside and and uh sits down sits down <laughs> yeah it's interesting that that whole sequence is um when he's in this sort of dream land and, and mike's right it really reminds me of that landscape from Dagon, you know, pitted and mossy and strange. And and uh, when he suddenly comes across this trolley car, it's this modern fragment that's suddenly yeah. there um, because the land sort of feels out of time. And just that stark, you know, it's there, it's running, it's about ready to go, but there's nobody there to, to start it. And just him getting in. And I, I, I don't know, there's something dreamlike and it's already scary to me. Yeah, because he also describes it as being kind of decrepit already, because like the worm-eaten posts that the, the wires dangling on, and the car seems to kind of right. down. Right, yeah. So this really thing that's creepy. only only like ten years old, it seems really ancient, which mm-hmm. is kind of a, a, a somewhat modern thing compared to. So it's, it's just wow, it's so cool. I just love this story. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the thing about this story too is it's genuinely creepy, scary, and it's not uh, a result of plot or plot revelations. It's all no. description. That leads to me being afraid. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. Well, I mean, so he's sitting in this car, and then, and then that's that's when things get really, really scary. Presently, I heard a swishing in the sparse grass toward the left, and saw the dark forms of two men looming up in the moonlight. They had the regulation caps of a railway company, and I could not doubt that they were conductor and motorman. Then, one of them sniffed with singular sharpness and raised his face to howl at the moon. The other dropped on all fours to run toward the car. I leapt up at once and raced madly out of that car and across endless leagues of plateau till exhaustion forced me to stop, doing this not because the conductor had dropped on all fours, but because the face of the motorman was a mere white cone tapering to one blood-red tentacle. That's that horrible, is, man. That is crazy stuff, man. Just the whole idea that there's a guys in uniforms that seem, you know, like, what's more innocuous than some dudes that run the trolley? You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing scary about them. They're okay. They're friendly. One dude howls, and the other guy freaking drops on all fours and runs on his... That's so inhuman and weird and twisted, and oh, it's just... Well, with the howling and the running on all fours, it almost seems like they're werewolves, and then the guy points his head up, and he's just got a tentacle head. And yeah, the the fear of being noticed in a dream, it happens all the time, but 
you know, you're trying to be quiet and you don't know what's going on. And then whatever the force is sees you and comes at you. It's a horrifying moment. When this happens, uh, once the conductor gets to him, he he wakes up. Well, he doesn't really wake up. The dream starts over again. And he knows it's a dream and, and, he, and he can't get out of it. It just happens over and over and over again. Yeah. Every time he get, you know, he wanders, he wanders, he finds himself in the same place, the same cone face thing coming at him. It's crazy. It's like a video game. He can't pass this part. He sucks <laughs> at it. Exactly. And this is where it ends up. It has been the same each day. Night takes me always to that place of horror. I have tried not moving with the coming of nightfall. But I must walk in my slumber, for I always awaken with the thing of dread howling before me in the pale moonlight, and I turn and flee madly. God, when will I awaken? That is what Morgan wrote. I would go to 66 College Street in Providence, but I fear for what I might find there. Oh, that's great. That's so creepy. Yeah, it's pretty great. So, yeah, so basically he can't wake up and then Morgan wrote it and, you know, he gave an address. But the guy who read the story just won't go to that address to see what could be there. Is there maybe there's like a corpse there? There's a dude sleeping in. He's got like a Rip Van Winkle beard or or some monster sucking on a guy's head. Who knows? It's so creepy. I love it. Or he's dead in front of the computer looking through walkthroughs so he can get past this part. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of the story. I love that one, and uh, that's that's often a story that I'll give to people who don't know Lovecraft because, you know, it's short. You can read it in a couple of minutes, and uh, it's all atmosphere, and it just shows how talented he was at, at painting kind of this hellish landscape and also some monsters that you don't expect, and just the whole thing gives you a terrible feeling. Yeah, it's a really cool story. And and as a, oh, a side note, that uh, 66 College was, was Lovecraft's house at one point, and that's why, you know, it's put in there. But actually... For the record, 66 College Street is now 65 Prospect Street in Providence. You know, just over the years, they changed the name of the street, so it's not the same place. But you can go to hplovecraft.com and actually see photographs of the house. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's still there. I'm sure the people that live there are very glad that you just gave their address. Oh, no. Oh, well. That's <laughs> they get. You know, Lovecraft fans, I've, I found, are generally pretty, pretty nice, respectful yeah, people. Right. So uh, I don't think they'll have anything to worry about. They fear what they might find in there anyway. Exactly. Jeez. So Mm-hmm. I think I, I I think it was you, Chad, that mentioned Morgan, just not being a foreigner or something. I, I always I took it as him being like an idiot, idiot savant or something. Okay, so you guys both thought that there was because that seemed because it seems a little more weird for all of a sudden he's channeling something from somebody and it's really you know incongruous with his normal capacity, rather than you know you could say like well he's just been practicing writing some crazy letters from this Howard Philip guy, right? That's how he's learning English. Yeah, well, I mean, he says, yeah, well, I mean, what Chad points out, and he might, Chad might be right on this. That was my first instinct, too, is that he was, you know, special or or if you're from the South, a little sweet. Uh, but it seems that he um, he says specifically cannot speak English, you know, and I think maybe he, if he was just special, he would have said he couldn't speak, period. But um, it doesn't say so there's arguments for both just in that sentence, because he says he cannot speak English with any degree of coherency, which would lead you to believe that. He's trying to speak English, but it just comes out sounding right. uh, sweet. So who knows? Interesting. So, Mike, uh, what, what were your thoughts on this uh, story just in general? I liked it. I, th- I liked the, um, the ambiance going 
into the whole train sequence. Just kind of like, all right, he's just wandering around. It's kind of creepy by itself, you know, all the pools of blackness and he doesn't know what's in there and all that stuff. And then he comes to the train, these two guys come up, you're like, all right, just you're gonna explain something. <laughs> and then they just, you know, one guy has a tongue for a face and you know, <laughs> it's kind of creepy. <laughs> well, I'm interested. I mean, since you've been working on this for uh, this whole project, this podcast with us for a while, what, what initially attracted you to Lovecraft, Mike? I mean, what, when did you first started reading him? When did you get into it? In high school, I never got into Lovecraft. I knew of Lovecraft. And uh, it wasn't until like, maybe like, five or six years ago that I actually um, was looking into Call of Cthulhu, the video game, when it was first announced. And I'm like, I keep hearing see this Cthulhu name, and I, I went to work with some guy who always talked about you know, Call of Cthulhu, so I, I just went onto Wikipedia way back when. <laughs> it looked wow. up Cthulhu, and it kind of, from there, I just started, I picked up the books, like, this is great stuff. Because I was already into uh, Robert E. Howard at that point. Oh. Uh, wow. So it was kind of, you know, it was, it was kind of, yeah. You're a latecomer to, to H.P. Lovecraft then. Yeah. That's that's surprising. I don't meet too many people that uh, read his stuff when they're when they're older. That's that's pretty cool. Well, you know, it's funny. That's like I, I met a guy um, on I met my friend Christopher on an airplane uh, a couple of months ago. He sat down next to me and just opened up a big anthology of the Lovecraft story. Which was cool. I, I had that moment where I'm like, do I say anything? You know? Yeah. You, <laughs> you know who I am. say something. Yeah. I you have, have to, to say something. But, you know, he came to the stories by playing uh, Arkham Horror, the board game. Oh, right, yeah. Very recently. So I think that a lot of people, it's through the gaming connection that they wind up reading this literature, which is interesting. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people are coming to, you know, Virgil, Virgil's Aeneid by uh, <laughs> playing, you know, the Aeneid role-playing game. <laughs> Where are you now? I'm in Santa Monica. Chris, you are there in the UK. Where are we talking to you from, Mike? I am Manchester, New Hampshire. I am in Lovecraft country. That's oh, right. We've got an East Coast presence on this show. All right. But I guess that means we're wrapping up. So let's uh, remind everybody again about the promotions that we're doing as well. Please go to the site and donate. When we raise enough money, we're going to release those excellent readings by Bruce Green and Andrew Lehman. Oh, um, hey, for the record, too, Bruce Green is going to be, uh, you can see him in the upcoming uh, remake of True Grit by the Coen brothers. So, yeah, Bruce is going to, everybody go see that this Christmas. Uh, I can't wait to see Bruce up there on screen riding a horse. I think he gets shot or something like that. Yeah. It should be interesting. <laughs> I, he's, I mean, it's a speaking part. It's a real role. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he's, yeah, in, yeah. Uh, he's in Barry Pepper's gang. Yeah. Uh, so he'll be reading uh, From Beyond for us, that, that uh, now famous actor, Bruce Green. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much, not just for being with us today on the show, but for all of your help uh, for making this podcast possible. And without you being there and your work and support on the forums and everything, we just, the show wouldn't be. So thank you. Well, thank you for giving me a chance to do it. It's actually a blessing for me to be able to, you know, to, to come in and uh, help you guys out and get to talk and make no sense on uh, the podcast. Excellent. And uh, I also want to thank Elliot Miller, who did our readings for us today. Great job, Elliot. Really appreciate it. And with that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I am Mike Mann. <laughs> and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.